If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome back to this special History Extra End of Roman Britain podcast series. This is episode 9, the final episode, and I'm David Musgrove. So this is the wrap-up episode where I'm going to try and pull together what we've learnt in the uh, eight episodes that have gone before about what really happened at the end of Roman Britain. We've heard how our understanding of the topic is being thoroughly shaken up. Uh, We've got fascinating new archaeological discoveries coming through, like the Chedworth Roman Villa Mosaic finding that we talked about at the top of the series. Uh, That discovery sort of challenges traditional assumptions of how people might have been living through the 5th century, and particularly this idea that Roman Britain somehow completely and abruptly ended in the early years of that century. Then we learned from Will Bowden, Rob Collins and David Petz about the nature of late Roman society, how far Britain was incorporated into the wider Roman Empire, how it fitted in economically, militarily and indeed religiously. I hope that was useful context because obviously you can't really hope to understand the end of Roman Britain without having a sense of what went before. Then we heard from James Gerard and Robin Fleming, who've been doing detailed work on the material culture of the period, and that's led to them making some fascinating theories about people might have viewed their place in the world. We heard from all our speakers about the problems of trying to correlate that material culture with what the uh, at times sketchy historical record has to say. Then I spoke to some scientists, Sam Leggett and Duncan Sayer, uh, whose work and that of their colleagues on the physical skeletal remains of the people alive in the 5th century is offering a whole new way of understanding what was going on. We haven't talked about it much in this series, but there's another interesting strand of research uh, from experts considering the landscape history of late and post-Roman Britain to help us understand what the physical evidence from the likes of field boundaries and other landscape features can tell us about continuity or otherwise of settlement and population through the period. Have a search in our podcast archive for my interview uh, in 2019 with Professor Susan Westhazen for more on that. Now, all our experts caution that we need to think uh, quite locally and regionally about what was happening and remind us that the picture in the south and east of Britain might have been quite different to the north and west and, uh, and probably on a micro basis within that as well. I think that's the one area where there was uh, the pretty, pretty clear, complete agreement. Aside from that, we've had some similar views and some diverging opinions. Here's what I heard. Most of our experts talked about the need to view things in the long term and to try to pull out trends across the period. I think there was general agreement that there was stresses on society um, becoming apparent long before the start of the 5th century, with uh, the archaeologically attested withdrawal from urban centres through the 4th century, as Will Bowden mentioned, for instance. 
I think we were talking about things that had worked for a while in a certain way, starting to look quite different as we move through the period. So some villa sites start to be less about elite display and more about agricultural production through the mid-4th century, for instance. That was something that Robin Fleming noted. This coincided with a period of substantial political instability across the Roman Empire, as evidenced by the documentary sources which Will Bowden and Rob Collins talked about. So that's a, a kind of a long run-up of slow change in Roman Britain through the 3rd and 4th centuries. But then most of our experts did talk about a pretty sharp speeding up of change at the start of the 5th century. Robin Fleming talked about the Roman economy unwinding rapidly, with towns and villas dead by 450, and a very different Britain existing to a century uh, earlier. Our experts talked about a collapse in the material culture of Roman Britain, with the likes of Roman pottery and metalworking rapidly disappearing, for example. Now, there is a risk, of course, and many of our experts pointed this up, of reading societal collapse from collapse of material culture. And the two aren't necessarily linked, and the dating is particularly problematic, of course. What we heard instead was that in the 5th century, we're moving into a period where Britain fairly quickly became dislocated from the wider Roman imperial economy and the obligations and security that came with that. That meant that people were more required to look to their own defence, but they were also potentially released from the requirement to produce a surplus to feed the Roman military machine. Remember that we also heard a lot about the inequality of Roman society and the differences in experience of the haves and have-nots. The fast-moving changes in the early 5th century meant that people had the opportunity, or perhaps the necessity, to change the way they positioned themselves in society. That meant, perhaps, that for those at the top of late Roman society, there was a need to reposition themselves as local leaders, providing a different source of security and support to their population. That led, it was argued, to more locally based and militaristically inclined power structures. For those at the bottom, there was a chance to reimagine who they were and how they identified. Some people, like perhaps those at Chedworth Roman Villa making that mosaic in the 5th century, might have been wanting to make a continuing association with the Roman way of life, while others might have wanted to assert a new sort of identity, perhaps an overtly non-Roman one. Now that highlights the point that several of our commentators talked about regarding how far we can understand what any given person might have felt about who they were and how they identified, um, simply from the material culture that they've left behind. If someone in the 5th century was buried with a brooch that stylistically looks different to late Roman models and more similar to examples from the continent, for example, does that mean that they were from the continent, enforced to wear it by someone from the continent, or voluntarily looking to associate with that style and identity? I hope I was careful with my use of the term ethnicity in this discussion because several of our speakers caution that we're much more concerned today with that concept than likely was the case for the people living in the 5th century. And I'm going to pause for a second, go back to uh, James Gerrard for a little bit more on that topic. I'd quite like really to get away from the whole debate about ethnicity and identity in the 5th century. And I think this is where Robin Fleming's book is quite interesting, actually, as it tries to do that. Um, we've We've really tried to tackle ethnicity and identity. And we're not going to get the answers because it's not the right question to ask. We're never going to be able to prove whether somebody buried with a particular kind of brooch believed themselves to be an Angle or a Saxon. We're not going to be able to prove whether they spoke Old English. We're not going to be able to prove 
whether they well, we might be able to prove whether they moved across the North Sea, but not why they did it. We certainly won't be able to prove whether their grandmother moved across the North Sea. So we, we, we're chasing our tails with this, trying to find, you know, some of the research which is like, which comes out, which says, you know, 70% of English people are descended from Anglo-Saxons. And then the next week, it's like, 12% of English people are descended from Anglo-Saxons. And this is all based on various kinds of DNA evidence. It's interesting, but the, the DNA is just the DNA. The DNA doesn't tell you anything about your culture or your identity, right? And sociologists might talk about avowed and ascribed identities. Avowed identities, the identities we hold ourselves. Ascribed identities, the ones imposed upon us by others. They might overlap with our avowed identities. It's I, th- I think it's pretty much intractable, actually. We can speculate, but I don't think we can really answer those questions. So different questions, questions questions about the economy, questions about the landscape, questions about architecture, about the ways things are made. They tell us something. Questions about osteology, you know, how tall are people? What, how's their diet? Those are, those are things that are really interesting. Will Bowden takes a similar view to James Gerrard about the exciting opportunities offered by the new scientific techniques available for skeletal analysis. And he also thinks there's some new questions we ought to be asking. So let's hear from Will. I think the the most exciting stuff is really happening in the areas of um you know particularly looking at human human skeletal human skeletal remains um, we now have the tools that we can study um health migration diet and these sorts of things using skeletal remains that simply um weren't available or weren't mainstream 20 years ago and now we're getting um an ever greater data set of material that is telling us, you know, about health, about, um, you know, how people are moving around. And, uh, and I think that's going to really help us, you know, move away from the, the sort of dead end, if you like, of the, of the, the debate on the the debate on the fifth century, because to some extent the debate on the fifth century, I think, has for a long time it you know it fossilized into a sense of you know you know either the people were there you know and archaeology couldn't you know couldn't see them or the disappearance of the archaeological evidence meant that there was dramatic change in in people's lives and for a long time i think it's been quite hard to move uh, for the debate to move move beyond that um but now i think people are asking different sorts of different sorts of questions and the way that we think about identity has you know, dramatically developed, I think, over the last over the last 20, 20 years, and so I think we can now we've got new we've got new scientific techniques on the one hand, and we've also got you know, new ways of thinking about the data that we've got, and so I think 
over the, I'm hoping that over the next you know 20 years if i'm still still uh, still working and still around to, around to see it that um we will start seeing a a new version of the 5th century and also one that gets rid of the disciplinary divides that i think have stymied study of this area because for a long time you've had people who study the roman period and people who study the early medieval the early medieval period and that yeah and obviously that disciplinary divide meets at the meets at the fifth century and i think it's becoming increasingly unhelpful simply to look at the roman period and then you know people start sort of you know, tail off in the fifth century and then the early medieval people sort of take over and i think we're going to lose that we're going to lose those disciplinary those disciplinary divides or at least i very much hope we do so james flagged up there the difficulties of making sense of the new data that is coming through from the latest scientific work particularly in the field of osteology we heard from sam leggett uh, in episode seven our expert in this field that the evidence is pointing to a a recognisable movement of people into southern and eastern Britain during the period. But of course, that brings up lots of questions about the nature of that population movement, questions that, that probably won't go away. There will be much more to come on this as the science moves forward, I'm quite sure. So I asked Sam what she is most excited about in terms of upcoming research. I mean, there's there's so much work being done in um, East Anglia at the moment, which is, you know, sort of where everybody is pinning all their hopes on um, for this area and the cremation cemeteries, I think are going to completely blow us all out of the water. Um, That work is coming um, from scientists over in uh, Belgium. So hopefully we'll see what's happening in some of these really distinctive places like Spong Hill, um, which have hundreds of cremation urns that date to that Adventist Saxonum phase. Um, And previously we're like, oh, we can't do anything with that. They've been so burnt they're useless for isotopes, but actually they are. So I think that's going <laughs> to possibly um, shake us all to our core, but in a good way um, to see what's happening there. It'll be interesting. So get ready to be blown away. It's uh, exciting stuff that Sam's talking about there. But with this complicated and seemingly ever-changing picture of what was going on at the end of Roman Britain as, as people layer on new evidence onto the existing picture, it's maybe hard to come up with a mental image of what our experts are envisaging. I asked them if they could come up with a modern parallel or two that might help us focus our minds. Let's go to Will Bowden first. My take on this was very much influenced by my uh, PhD research and when I was working in Albania um, and uh, I was involved in a big project at a site called Boutrint uh, in southern Albania from about um, 1994 onwards. And this was a moment just after the communist regime of Enver Hoxha had collapsed in Albania. And I think it was the changes that we could see going on around us in uh, in that moment really influence the way that I sort of understand these understand these these processes. And you know, it's clear that the 
you know, the way that things like agriculture was changing, the collective farms were um, breaking down and things like irrigation systems were no longer being maintained. Um, the drainage systems for um you know, for draining the floodplain immediately in front of Brutrin, they were no longer uh, being maintained to the same the same extent. Um, yeah, you know, old you know factories for state run industries uh, were lying lying in ruins, and you know, people were really struggling to uh, to eat to and um, to keep body and soul together. And there was mass emigration from the country; uh, people were leaving in droves. And I think certainly that had a real that had a real influence on the way that I view this I view this type of change. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So Will Bowden there sees a parallel in the uh, post-communist experience in Albania. And uh, let's go to Robin Fleming. I think the collapse of the Soviet Union is a very good uh, model. Um, I, but the, the collapse only went so far and then things started to, the world started putting itself back together again because we have this big global economy, I think. But had that been able to play out on its own, I think it would have been a pretty good um, correlate to... Um, what was happening in this period. But I, you know, it's hard not to think of Blade Runner or um, these kind of sci-fi apocalyptic movies, right, when you think about this period as well. I, th- I think you, you would need, you would probably need a series of those modern modern analogies. Uh, I think, I think in some ways, the sorts of political changes that accompanied the fall of the Soviet Union are, are interesting to think about. The removal of that state superstructure, that's quite interesting i think we might i i'm based in newcastle right so it's an area with a rich industrial heritage mining shipbuilding all all the rest of it um we could we could look at 
We could look at Newcastle's deindustrialized landscape, of which there are elements that still haven't been redeveloped. And you could look at that as decline. Um, but at the same time, I, I live in a city which is hugely vibrant, full of interesting people, interesting businesses, interesting opportunities. So I would, I would encourage us to think about some of those really major changes that have happened in some of our lives. Deindustrialization de being one of them. And think about was that the end of the world? It might have been very difficult, it might have been very traumatic. Was it the end of the world for people? Um, you know, also think about things like if if you're if you're old like me, you remember VHS video recorders, right? So nobody's got VHS, very few people have a VHS video recorder anymore. Some people do, so that's interesting. So some things carry on long beyond their useful lives because people are attached to them. But the disappearance of VHS video recorders tells us nothing at all about um, our appetite for consuming films. Okay? So we still, we still consume films, we stream them, but we don't need the material, we don't need the same kind of material culture to do that. And that's a useful kind of mind game to play with the fifth century, right? Babies were still born. Plants still grew. Crops still needed to be harvested. Horses still need to, needed to be ridden, right? How did that take place? And it might be that things were done in a different way. It might be the buildings were built out of timber. You used leather and wood instead of pottery, Maybe use metal more, but we're really careful about recycling it, right? But it's but life still went on. It was transformed, but life still went on. And then occasionally you might go to somebody's house in the fifth century and find that they still had, they still had a Roman pot that they were cooking mutton stew in, right? In the same way that you might still go. Uh, to a friend's house, and they might still have a VHS video recorder. And there's a there's a fantastic uh, sixth century burial, Anglo-Saxon burial from Hampshire, which is buried with a late Roman black burnished ware jar made in Dorset. You know that was somebody who had either curated or rebooted a really ancient piece of material culture, and that's the sort of that's the sort of thing we have to think about. Think about that. Today, think about the things that you use that are quite old. Think about the technology that has disappeared and you do things differently. So some great food for thought there from James Gerard, but it also got me thinking about how far we're seeing the end of Roman Britain through the lens of our current times. Now, you know, that's kind of unavoidable, but it's interesting to think about it, particularly as we wrestle with climate change, pandemics, and terrible warfare. Let's go over to Rob Collins for a view on that. All archaeologists draw on their life experiences, whether it's at a personal level or just the world around them. Um, and, you know, uh, state collapse is is really fascinating. You know, that... Um, you know, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, for example, stimulated a whole range of scholarship that looked at um, the notion of, of kind of failed states and, and what that meant for the end of the Roman Empire. Or 
um, for example, a lot of the conflicts through the through the nineties in Africa, the the um, intertribal ethnic conflict, was also considered in in how that helps us understand uh, things in society in the past. Climate change is a big one. Um, you know, that's that's really going to influence how we think about things. The the uh, migration crisis that we're you know that's been seen in Europe over recent years has been a, a big push to kind of reconsidering the role of borders um, in ancient borders as well as modern borders. So we're always going to draw on that. On the other hand, we also have to be careful and aware of our own biases. So I would say, you know, the question I would ask is, what do you think about living in in a post-imperial Britain? You know, we're living in the collapse of the British Empire at the moment. You know, the British Empire ended at least, you know, 60 years ago. Do you feel like we live in a collapsed empire? Um, because that is a fact, but there are other factors that change how we perceive that. You know, um, we live in the core of that former empire. So, for example, someone living in a, a post-Roman Italy is going to experience the end of empire differently than someone living in post-Roman Britain. So we have to be aware of our biases and what we think a, a collapsed society or a collapsed political system means and let that evidence speak for itself and not impose our own values on it. So as Rob says there, it's pretty difficult for us to break out of the prison of the present when we're looking at the past. Robin Fleming also has a view on this. Well, I, I mean, I, you know, I'm enough of a historian to understand that we, you, we uh, are writing not only about the period in the past that we study, but we're writing about ourselves. And this has always been the case. I mean, my, my first book um, I wrote my dissertation under Ronald Reagan, and uh, it was all about a kleptocracy because that's what was happening in America, even though I was writing about the Normans. And I mean, I don't, I, I don't think I would have seen some of the changes that I see um, were I not living in the times that I'm living in. And I think that's always the case um, for the history we write. Some interesting thoughts there. Let's now go back to Will Bowden for just a little bit more texture to that idea that the way that our modern experience uh, might be shaping our interpretation of the end of Roman Britain. Archaeology and history is always a reflection of the time in which people in which people are people are living, and uh, we certainly saw this in the eighties uh, in the eighties and nineties that the views of the Roman Empire and the you know, Roman Britain and, for example, the uh, so-called Anglo-Saxon migrations were very much viewed, uh, very much influenced by uh, contemporary trends towards greater unification in, in Europe. And I think now in the we are seeing a yeah, it's a really you know, quite obviously very dramatic, dramatic events and uh, responses to those to those events, and plague plague always emerged. Plague has always hovered on the you know the fringes as part. Plague and climate change, in fact, have always uh, hovered on the fringes of explanations as to some of the changes that we see at the end of the Roman period in Britain. And yeah, it may well be that we see you know, greater attention paid to those, uh, those forces 
in the next decade, in the next decade or so. Okay, finally, after all those provisos and words of warning, let's finish up by going back to where we started in that fabulous mosaic at Chedworth Roman Villa. We're going to finish with an optimistic note about where we might be going in our understanding of what really happened at the end of Roman Britain from Rob Collins. I, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. And I suspect uh, not only me, if you talk to uh, you know the other colleagues you've, you've interviewed with this podcast, I know certainly James Gerard, he and I both would have absolutely predicted 20 years ago, it was a matter of time, something like Chedworth would be found. Um, and it has been. So I think, you know, maybe James and I are feeling a bit smug about that. But um, even if we didn't get to make the discovery, it's, you know, still well on them. Um the other thing is, you know, techniques improve all the time. You know, 20 years ago, we knew about carbon-14 dating, but it was still a bit expensive. And actually, one of the things that started happening 20 years ago is that matching of carbon dating with more detailed statistical analysis and statistical modeling. So we can now do things with carbon dates, which are cheaper and easier to get, where we can model a bit more closely. And actually, we're getting better we're not great, but we're getting better at being able to date the 5th century. And that's partly why we've been able to do that with Chedworth. It's, it's some of these technological and methodological advancements. Um, we also, you know, what's great about the UK is we have developer-funded archaeology. You know, so when there's infrastructure projects, the developer has to pay for that archaeology that might be lost or completely destroyed. And this often presents a whole bunch of new information all the time. Um, in London and York are both fantastic examples of this. You know, all the building, you know, London is always being, you know, is always under construction. You know, but some fantastic discoveries have come up in London in the past 20 years that have really helped us understand London in the 5th century. Um, there have been um, discoveries or more excavations, for example, of cemeteries um, outside of Winchester, um, where we have new insights because of the burials found there, or um, at Swung Hill in East Anglia, where, again, cheaper carbon-14 dates have allowed us to get some new dating and, and, and just better understand that change in the 5th century. So I feel optimistic. I think we're going to find out a lot more over the coming years. It's just a question of archaeology being continued. Uh, to practice, you know, that that we need that developer-funded archaeology, um, that that we find out new information all the time, that archaeology needs to have those research grants that allow us to pay for things like C14 dating. Um, but most important is that people continue to be interested in the period. You know, this is the age of Arthur we're talking about. Um, it's the birth of Anglo-Saxon England. It's the birth of Wales. It's, you know, the, the roots of Scotland. Um, you know, this is the most formative period for what is now modern Britain. Um, and we just, we need to understand it better. That's what it comes down to. So that feels like a nice note to end on from Rob Collins. Hopefully you'll continue to be interested in the period as he, as he hopes, and do indeed understand it a little bit better if you stayed with me through this series. I'm sure there's lots more to come in studies of the period, particularly as the new scientific techniques that we've talked about begin to throw up more and more results and add yet more data to the picture. Complicating things, no doubt. But for now, thank you very much for listening and thanks, of course, to all my guests for joining me in this journey. If you want to know more about Roman Britain generally, particularly in this anniversary year of Hadrian's Wall, do check out the Roman Britain section on historyextra.com. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>